Good morning. Good morning. Join me in prayer for the scripture reading. Lord God, help us to turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak. For you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. First verse I'll be reading from is Exodus 24, 1 through 8 in the NIV. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nehad, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The next verse is from Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this. And divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scripture. Good morning. How is everybody? Okay, can I lift this up? Better for my eyesight. Okay, ignore the coughing. That's my husband. He's fine. He's just getting over a cold. He's at the end of it. Okay, the Wame people build drying racks in their compounds, which serve both as a shelter from the sun, offering a shaded place underneath to sit and visit, and as a surface up away from animals and children to store and dry grains. Our house had an endare. This is what these drying racks are called, an endare, extending out from the house, and we often entertain visitors on the raised bamboo mat underneath. 
While we didn't use the Indera for drying things, we did position and reposition two small solar panels up there whose cables passed through the window of our house to charge a car battery inside. This provided us with some power for light in the evening. My husband, known as Lona in the village, adjusted the panels throughout the day to catch the most sunlight. It never dawned on us how this might appear to the villagers until one day, Pate, having never seen a solar panel before, came by and said to our language assistant, you should tell Lona that those things are never going to dry. <laughs> After that, we couldn't resist teasing him whenever he came by saying, they're not dry yet, Pate. Good morning. My name is Sue Jenkins. This story has nothing to do with what I'm going to say today, but it might keep you chuckling through some of the drier bits I'll be presenting. My husband Jay and I worked with, we still work, with Wycliffe Bible Translators. We spent most of our adult lives in Senegal, West Africa, working among the Wame people. Now, for those of you who don't know where Senegal is, my husband usually takes a volunteer and says, this is Africa, and the westernmost point right there is Senegal. Um, We raised three children in Senegal, Jamie, Jeremy, and Jason. Jason is here with us today. Uh, As is my sister Beth, who might want to stand up because um, I don't want you to confuse the two of us. People sometimes do. Many of you know Beth, but um, people are often mixing this up. So, okay. In January of 2019, we had the privilege of participating in the dedication of the translation of the New Testament and Genesis in the Wame language. Today, as the National Council of Churches, of which you are a part, celebrates World Communion Sunday, I want to share with you a little bit bit about your brothers and sisters in Christ in Senegal and how we are all a part of God's work there. Before I talk about Senegal, it occurred to me that it might be helpful to do a little review of what communion is about. Having spent a lifetime with my nose in dictionaries for various languages, I usually like to start with a definition and the etymology of a word. This is what I found online. Okay, this is the drier part where you get to chuckle to yourselves. In the late 14th century, the word communion, the noun, was known was written communion. It meant participation in something, that which is common to all, union in religious worship, doctrine, or discipline. From Old French, communion, around the 12th century, from Latin, communionum. The nominative was communio. Okay, this is what happens when you invite a linguist to talk. Fellowship, mutual participation, a sharing, used in late Latin ecclesiastical language for participation in the sacrament, for communis, common, general, used by St. Augustine in belief that the word was derived from com, com, meaning with or together, and unis, oneness or union, in English from the mid-15th century as the sacrament of the Eucharist from around 1500 as act of partaking in the sacrament of the Eucharist. 
Okay. So communion has to do with being together as, or coming together as one in unity. And in the church context, it more specifically speaks of sharing the bread and the wine in a ceremony of remembrance of the body and blood of Christ that was given for us. And why was it given for us? That we might be restored to union, coming together with God the Father. How? How does that restored union with God happen? In uh, Luke 20, 22:20, 20, which we just read, Jesus says, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this communion, this sacrament that Jesus gave us as something to be practiced among believers points to a new covenant. New covenant suggests there was an old covenant, and of course we know that to be the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. So why a second new covenant? Even in the Old Testament, God spoke of doing something new. He was preparing mankind for this new covenant that was to come. He rejected the external signs of those living under the Old Covenant, of circumcision, for example. Jeremiah 4.4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 9.25 and 26 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. But in the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 2.29, no, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So the Old Covenant, which consisted of circumcision and obedience to the law of God, has culminated in the New Covenant that Jesus speaks of at the Last Supper. Just as the Old Covenant was sealed by a blood sacrifice, as we read in Exodus 24, 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Likewise, the new covenant is also inaugurated by the shedding of Jesus' blood. The word covenant, diatheke in Greek, is not to be understood as an agreement between two parties, but as a divine decree by which God binds himself and the other party involved. There is a unilateral character in the idea of covenant. So this is what we are celebrating today, a new covenant made possible by the spilling of Christ's blood, a covenant that has been decreed by God and that binds him and all of us, his church, together in communion, a common union with him, a union that leads to a circumcision of our hard hearts, a union that leads to obedience out of gratefulness for what he has done for us and a union that also unites us with his worldwide church. During communion, we celebrate together this new covenant that allows us to be a part of God's kingdom. Today, I want to expand your vision and tell you about some of the things God is doing to um, expand his kingdom in Senegal. 
you have a growing number of brothers and sisters there. Senegal is the westernmost country on the African continent, as I said. It is a democracy about the size of Nebraska. Having been a French colony until their independence in 1960, the official language of the country is French. But over 36 other languages are spoken there. Can you imagine the size of Nebraska and 36 languages are spoken there? SIL, the linguistic organization that collaborates with Wycliffe Bible Translators, has worked in the country since 1984. I arrived in 1986 as a single woman and began linguistic studies in the Wame language, also known as Kunyagi. In 1989, while home on my first furlough, Jay and I were married. We returned to Senegal together, did a linguistic analysis of the language, followed by a translation of the New Testament and Genesis into that language. What was it like living in Senegal? Well, the country is sub-Saharan, so very desert-like. Yet the capital, Dakar, is a peninsula. So while most of the country is dry and sandy, Dakar can also be hot and humid. This, there is a dry season and a rainy season. You won't see a drop of rain from about mid-October till May or June, unless there happens to be a mango rain around January or February, a good one to two day drenching that causes the mango trees that dot the countryside to produce the biggest, sweetest mangoes you've ever eaten. As for the people, over 90% of Senegal's population is, a uh, population of 17 million people, is Muslim. 6.4% is Christian, mostly Catholic, and only 0.2% is evangelical. Senegal prides itself on living at peace with one another. Jamrek, peace only, is the wolof greeting you hear all around you. Muslims and Christians live and worship side by side and show respect to one another. Hospitality and generosity may be the two most important values in the culture, values we hope we learned during our time there. The Wame people are only a small part of these numbers I've mentioned. Their homeland is actually in Guinea, the country just south of Senegal, but most of the 22, 29,000 <laughs> Wame people have moved into Senegal and settled in small clusters. Most claim to be Catholic, some are Muslims, almost all are animists who fear the spirit world and are constantly trying to appease it or manipulate it in their favor. Then there's the church of those believers I mentioned, and those believers I mentioned earlier. According to Operation World, it's a great app you should all put on your phones, there were only 15 evangelical groups meeting in the capital in 1990. Today, there are over 60. SIL alone has done at least eight New Testament translations, and other missions have completed several more. Today, there are Christian radio stations operating in four out of 14 regions in Senegal. The goal is to have a radio station in each region. Now, this is in a, a, a country that, where the majority is Muslim. There are three Christian schools in the country designed to educate missionary kids, but also children of local Christian leaders. Another school has opened to offer a Christian education to local students in local languages. You may wonder how one goes about learning a language and translating scripture into it. SIL, of course, trained us in applied linguistics. We didn't go in cold turkey. We knew a little bit of what we were going to be doing. 
But it was still a pretty steep learning curve, moving into a mud hut with a thatched roof in a village of about 150 people to learn a yet unwritten language. There was no Duolingo or Rosetta Stone to turn to, all while trying to figure out a different culture, worldview, and belief system. The people told us, eat more rice, then you'll speak our language. And I guess they were right. The more time we spent together around the rice bowl, the more we picked up new vocabulary, different grammatical structures, and a solid appreciation for teranga, Senegalese hospitality. Our learning of the language started with scribbling words in a notebook. A collection of words helped us to identify all the sounds used to make the words. Identifying uh, word order taught us phrases, then clauses, full sentences, paragraphs, and finally texts. Like an inverted pyramid, we started with the smallest bits and worked up to the biggest bits, full communication. Just for fun, I'd like some audience participation here. Let's talk about some of these levels. The phonetic level, the very smallest basic level, um, where we're just picking up sounds. Let me ask you, how would you pronounce something written C-H-A-T? Chat. Chat. Do we have any French speakers here? How would you pronounce it in French? Chat. Chat. They don't sound a thing alike, but they're, they're spelled exactly the same way. So just how are we writing these sounds? We use what's called an international phonetic alphabet. So chat would have been written T, C, and then a squiggly A, and then T with a little H for the aspiration, chat. But sha would have been a... I've got to get my... Get it right, yes. An elongated S and an open A, ah. That's it. Totally different. Nothing the same in either word. And yet, their alphabets are, are the same. So we had to work through that. We worked with our, our phonetic alphabet, and we decide how we're going to write each of the sounds in that particular language. At the phonological level, I want everybody to put your finger in front of your mouth. Say the word stop. Now say the word top. Do you notice a difference in the T? Stop. Top. In stop, the T does not have any aspiration, but in top, there's a puff of air after the T. And yet, we write, we use the same symbol in English because after an S, our brain knows that in English, after an S, a T will not have any aspiration. It happens automatically. There's no need for a separate symbol. But in some languages, you're going to need to write T and TH because those two sounds are going to distinguish between the meaning of two different words. A noun phrase. Do you say tall, dark, and handsome man? Or do you say handsome, tall, and dark man? Sounds weird, doesn't it? Word order is very important. Do you usually say mom and dad or dad and mom? We tend to say mom and dad in our language. For a clause, next biggest level, which comes first, the noun or the verb? Do you say, I went to the store or to the store went I? 
Word order is important. In texts, what identifies different text genre? If I start with, uh, um, if I start what I'm going to say with once upon a time, what does that tell you? It's going to be a fairy tale, not a true story. If I start with dear Joe, it's a letter. So there are different, different things that will mark the genre of a text. I'm not going to t- tell a, a piece of history from the Old Testament and start off with once upon a time. From our collection of data, we were able to do an accurate linguistic analysis and produce an alphabet, a set of symbols, which could be used to express the language in writing. Once all of that was done and we had reached a reasonable level in our language acquisition, we were allowed to start translating scripture. That too was a process. We started with easy narrative texts like the Gospels and moved into the Pauline epistles, easy to hard. All the while, we were learning new vocabulary, new forms of expression, new grammatical structures. The learning never ends. But the Wame people were learning as well. They learned how weird white people can be. They learned that their language is very hard to teach and to explain. They learned that they were valued by God and by us. I mean, God had sent people all the way from America to bring them God's word in their own language so they could know him. They learned that they are part of a much bigger picture, God's church, his kingdom, and that we are all united in him. Jay and I were definitely called by God to be missionaries. We thrived in Senegal. We loved our work. It was not always easy, and many times I was ready to turn around and go home. But God never allowed us to do that. He had brought us there for a reason and with a purpose. It was when we couldn't see him working, bringing results, that we wondered what on earth we were doing there. And then he would tip his hand and show us the cards he was holding. As he played one card at a time, we began to see what he was doing. One such time was when we were finally cleared to start translating. We had spent many years analyzing the language, writing linguistic papers, creating the alphabet, studying the culture, and building relationships. When we were finally ready to start translating portions of the New Testament, we decided to do so in the village, where we spent half our time. The day I began translating, I laid out all my books, had my computer hooked up to a solar panel for power, and began to work. Before long, Haja, the wife from our village family came running up to my open window saying that her husband's sister was about to give birth. I immediately left my desk and ran to her hut to help. I'd always missed the birth of babies in the village because they tended to come in the middle of the night. But this was the middle of the morning. What a thrill it was for me to be able to help with this delivery and welcome a baby girl into the world. I was not back at my desk for very long, when kids, my kids ran up shouting that Apasara, our village dad, Apasara had caught a snake. We had actually never seen anything but baby snakes around our house, and Apasara was carrying a 12 to 15 foot reticulate python that was still writhing. He spent a good bit of time, we spent a good bit of time watching him cut it up behind our hut throwing chunks of now skinless meat into my biggest pressure cooker. 
meat for lunch. It wasn't until we were back in the capital and I was sharing the excitement of that day with a colleague that the full implication of these events hit home. My friend said to me, wow, that's incredible. The day you started translating scripture, a child was born and the head of the snake was crushed. God had clearly marked the importance of translating his word with these two events, pictures of him bringing the message of salvation to the Wami people. This this story chokes me up every time. (laughs) We have done our due diligence for a Sunday morning, correct? We have looked at some theology. We have learned a little bit of Greek. We have shared about God, what God is doing in another part of the world. Now it's time for personal application. We all know that it's a lot easier to practice unity amongst church members, to be kingdom children to family and friends, than it is to be in any way a part of what God is doing in places and people as far away as Senegal. And what does that matter? Don't we have enough, quite enough, to do right here? Well, yes, except for one thing. Having a godly world, uh, godly world view involves, well, the world. Christ has charged us to bring the gospel, the good news of salvation, to all nations. In fact, until we understand, and I was pleased to see this as the, the um, verse, the, the quote you put at the, on the first page of, the, of your program. Um, where am I at here? Um, in fact, until we understand that missions is not part of the church, but rather the church is part of the mission, we do not yet have God's perspective. As far back as Genesis 12, God sent Abraham to be a blessing to all nations. Jesus reiterated that after his resurrection when he charged his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And again, before he ascended into heaven, he told them to be his witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. He didn't say or, or, or. He said and, and, and. He is calling us to adopt his worldview. We are called to partner with him in bringing knowledge of him to the whole world. This is your homework assignment. Download that app I mentioned, Operation World, on your phones and set set it up to send you daily reminders to pray for what God is doing in different nations around the world. Remember these key words, inform, impact, and imagine. Inform yourselves about what God is doing. Pray about the impact missionaries are having in those places. Imagine what God might want to do next. As we engage more in being his witnesses to the world, here and abroad, be reminded that some are called to go, most are able to give, and all can pray for the kingdom-building God and his people are doing around the world. On that note, I would like to end with a quote from William Cameron Townsend, the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uncle Cam started his ministry in Guatemala 
And on April 19, 1921, 12 years before Wycliffe was founded, he wrote a letter from Guatemala stating, The task of getting the gospel in an adequate way to every ethnic person is tremendous. There's but one solution. I'm sure that it isn't man, money, surveys, or talk. They all have their place. But if the basis of all this isn't fervent, believing prayer, they are all in vain. They all, they, and, and prayer should not only be the basis, but it should permeate and vitalize the whole work. I long for the people at home, for the believers here, the national workers and the missionaries to be more faithful in wielding this great power that God has given them. Let's pray. Father God, we stand here today knowing that each one of us, even we missionaries, are guilty of of not always thinking about the things that you are accomplishing around the world and the importance of our prayers for that work. We thank you for tools like like Operation World that... um, informs us of so much that is going on in different places. We thank you, Father, for opportunities to to talk to others about your work, to share with them the ways that you are working miracles in other countries through dreams, through healings, through so many different things that make people aware of the power of the God that created them. We thank you that we can be a part of your work, your kingdom building, through prayer, through our giving. We thank you, Father, for all these things in Jesus' name.